With the COVID-19 pandemic subsiding and the war in Ukraine entering a seemingly more stable phase, supply chains are adjusting to geopolitical factors forcing them to rethink operating models. In Get Episode 2, Michael Spence and Sam Palmasano discuss geoeconomic and geopolitical shocks to supply chains and how leaders should adjust their strategies and execution. Welcome to The Get, the podcast for enterprise leaders delivering timely insights for today's global economy and tomorrow's competitive advantage. I'm your host, Chris Kane, president of the Center for Global Enterprise. Today, we're going to focus on the topic that most consumers never concern themselves with, and frankly, a lot of business leaders underplayed the strategic value of supply chains specifically strategies for managing critical supply chains in turbulent times. First, it was the global pandemic. Now it's the crisis in Ukraine and the COVID and supply chain developments in China. Supply chains have been catching a lot of attention in the last few years, and a lot of that attention has not been positive. The good news is enterprise leaders understand the critical role of supply chains now more than ever. And the public has a new appreciation for how supply chains affect so many facets of their daily life. The big question, of course, is how can we build better, more resilient supply chains that are agile and able to quickly address unforeseen and in some cases, catastrophic events? To discuss the changing role of supply chains and how business leaders can transform their organizations, we're fortunate to have with us today, Sam Palmasano, founder and chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise and former chairman and CEO of IBM, and Michael Spence, Nobel laureate and former dean of the Stanford School of Business. Sam and Mike, thanks for joining us today. Sam, how about if we start with you? What do organizations need to do to change their supply chains to be more flexible and to be able to adjust quickly to these oncoming and very diverse global events? Well, Chris, thank you, uh, and it's great to be with you today. I'd like to go back quickly on the current design of supply chains and what drove the current design. It was a cost model, and obviously you needed quality in your products, but it was a cost-driven model. So in a cost-driven model, you're going to drive scale, larger scale, scale economics, you're going to have a lower cost per unit, therefore, you're going to drive your competitive. And it was significant that all companies drove that, and inventory turns and cash management, all those things that are very, very important to a company were a result that that model drove the design of the supply chains. That worked for decades, quite honestly, to get cost out and quality up in the supply chains. What happened is they're not resilient and they're not flexible because you have a scale model. You have a concentration model, trying to be the factory of the world. That's what that results in, in a scale model. So therefore, what's going to have to happen is that companies are going to now design for resiliency and customer service which is, it's going to be higher cost, but if they can drive value to their customers, then therefore they can price for that cost because they've created a valued relationship. It could be service levels. I mean, there are models for this today. If you look at retail and everybody loves the fact that you order online and you get stuff the next day, whether it's Amazon or whatever it happens to be, that's great. But that set the expectation from the consumer of the service levels that are required. So if you could design for agility, which means you have to address the last mile problem, you have to get it from 
the factory or the distribution center or the port to the house. And that's where the complication is. That's a design. It's not just nearshoring, but it's nearshoring for the value you could generate for your customers or your clients, not just nearshoring because you're concerned about resiliency and political risk. Mike, you've worked in the supply chain area and its relevance to economic development and economic policy for years. Thoughts on supply chain resilience and the ability for global leaders and company leaders to design more resilient and agile supply chains? I think we're at the end of this long period in which we used huge amounts of underutilized productive capacity around the world in the developing countries, and it was cost-driven. And that was deflationary and delivered astonishing quality products all over the world at relatively modest prices. The relative price of these goods kept declining in a world that saw rising prices in lots of other areas. Well, why do I think that's over? Because there isn't another China. Because India is not going to go down that road. Because the African countries, I don't think, can fill in the gap as China becomes a really a pretty high middle-income country and moves to, to different things. And finally, we shouldn't forget that in the course of this very successful development in China and India and Indonesia and a number of countries, we've created tens of millions of new middle-class consumers. So the demand side of the global economy doesn't look anything like what it looked like 25 years ago. It's A, huge, and B, it's located in a different place. So I think what's gonna happen is first, we're gonna have inflation, Second, let me make a prediction just to make this colorful. I think in 10 to 15 years, manufacturing broadly will not be labor intensive and the same will be true of much logistics. If that's true, I expect the movement to be toward the final market because there are advantages in terms of knowing your customer and whatnot that Sam understands way better than I do. So I think that's one of the things that we're gonna see. We were talking about the end customer, Mike, you were alluding to that. And Sam, you were talking about the last mile. What's been enabled that we see in many companies that we work with is a business model that they've never been able to use before or never chosen to use before direct to consumer or direct to customer. And it's almost impossible to have a complete competitive advantage there if you haven't quite figured out the last mile. And we see that today. So are there innovations in the last mile, Sam and Mike, that you see coming, or are there barriers that are so strong that a concentrated effort to overcome those barriers would be important for industry to apply itself to? Well, I think go back to where it was before the cost model, right? And the reason why you did the things that you did, you're trying to optimize the cost, right? So therefore, whether that was logistics or shipping or all elements of that to get it to wherever it had whether that was a store shelf or your house, whatever it happened to be. So therefore, as a company, because you were managing your costs, you had partnerships in your supply chains. Say you would use distributors or logistics companies or FedEx, UPS, whomever, you could outsource to those guys to do those sorts of things for you. However, what's changed, everybody wants to pick on Amazon, but that model has made everybody rethink this. And they want an end-to-end -end integrated model. They have the end view of the consumer and the need to see the goods that are coming on, whether they're not the manufacturer, in their case, they're the aggregator, but nonetheless, you do the same thing with Alibaba, and then you add the payment system called Alipay. You, know, you see this end-to-end -end integration. So my point is that what are the elements of the integration that allow them to have these service levels 
but still maintain competitive costs. Well, in the distributor centers, it's called robotics. I mean, there aren't a lot of people running around in those distribution centers. I know people talk about this as far as unionization, but to me, it was like a semiconductor facility. You're going to utilize 15 people, the 400,000 on IBM. It's all going to be replaced by technology. You get to the efficiency of the trucks. And yes, they were large and expensive in the past because you had your scale model, but now you have these prime trucks everywhere. They're going to become EVs and self-driving. Back to Mike's point, long-term. So there are lots of innovation. You can actually get to the manufacturing element of this if we were designing called 3D printing today, which can be done with 3D printing. So you don't have these big manufacturing centers that go to a distribution center that go to the store, wherever it happens to be. You could print it on the spot and those kinds of things. So Mike's right. They're going to drive huge innovation, lots of productivity, but also disruption. So if you are a traditional company that's not used to operating in this model, it's going to be complicated. It's not an easy transition to get from where they are today after a hundred years of doing whatever they did to where they need to be, like what Mike's saying, the next 15 or 20 years. Mike, any thoughts? I completely think Sam's got this right. And it's important. I would only add that when I look out at the world and what's going on in rejiggering these supply chains, one of the things that strikes me is this global explosion of entrepreneurial activity around the internet. I mean, we now have an estimated 6.5 billion people on the mobile internet, which we didn't see coming 15 years ago. And so you've got in a growing number of places around the world, China, India, Latin America, and so on, this is largely digital uh, ecosystems that do the financing, that make it possible for people to innovate in these relatively coordinated data-driven environments and so on. I guess in addition to this integrated model, which is pretty powerful, if I were in the world of thinking how we're going to get through to consumers, I'd be trying to think about what's my place in these growing, highly dynamic digital ecosystems that are blossoming like weeds all over the world. So you both have talked about the uh, necessity and the power of technology to deliver uh, supply chains that are more agile and more resilient. But what where are the gaps in management? Sam, maybe we can talk to you on this first, which is, you know, it's one thing to have the tools. It's another thing to have the management processes and the management aptitude to utilize the tools in the most effective way. Where are the gaps in management of transforming a supply chain? And let's just call it from my existing model to a direct-to-customer model, whether I'm a B2B or B2C company. Well, I think Mike started with it. If you look at these entrepreneurial companies or you look at people that have become very, very successful in this digital data-driven world that's all mobile interface with the phone, right? They have a completely different management system than a traditional company like an IBM or a FedEx. Or you go through the whole list, General Motors, Ford, pick anybody you want. Our, our management systems are 100 and some years old, right? And these guys, including the big ones who have scaled this hyperscalers, whether that's it on Netflix, Spotify, Amazon, et cetera, they have a completely different management system. And their management's designed for speed, agility, but heavily skill-based. It's not as vertical. We had silos and those sorts of things. I don't want to go design a management system on the podcast, but having said all that, if you look to the future, if you're a traditional company, you should model the innovators that Mike's alluding to. And don't discount them because they're small. Look at their management system, look at their skills development, look at their processes and controls, all those sorts of elements that they have. 
and decide what is right for you. Obviously, you can't just go to that date why you have 100 years of history, but you have to make that transition in some way. I'd like to start to close out our conversation about supply chains with the government. We've certainly in the last two years seen government's involvement, support, intervention in supply chains become very pronounced around the world. Governments are trying to deal with shortages of simple things like toilet paper all the way to complex things like semiconductors. And they don't want to be in a position of having their citizens and or their population wanting for even the most basic things that we're seeing right now in the United States, like baby formula. So What's needed from government leaders to achieve greater supply chain resilience and efficiency, and maybe what isn't or shouldn't be needed? First of all, if you define a supply chain end to end, right, the individual consumer to the actual component that gets to the manufacturer, that is the supply chain and it's global. And there's nothing a regional government can do about that fact. Right. It's always been this way. It's not going to change because they give a nice speech or they tweet. It doesn't matter. That's what it is. So if you're going to be able to solve yourself in a crisis like we've had, you need an end-to-end -end view, which means you need collaboration, which means you need information flows, which means you need data flows. It means you have to be able to deal with some of the privacy implications. All the things that they are doing to regulate their world is impacting their ability to optimize in a pandemic or in a global disruption like a war, all those things. So that I'm not saying that they're necessarily not well-intended because as they look at these very narrow elements of this, like information flows and information sharing, data privacy, those kinds of things, there's a need in certain areas for sure. But at the end of the day, if you are going to optimize your economy for the world that we're going to live in, that requires interconnection and growth for you to sustain your standards of living or to grow your standards of living, you have to have this end-to-end -end view. Now, where I come from, which I know many people have heard me say before, all governments in the world do not have the skills and capability to do these things, whether it's in cyber or information flows or data management, it doesn't matter in these kind of technologies. None of them have the skills or the capability to have them overseeing things where they don't have the capability or the knowledge is ineffective and we ought to just understand that and if we wanted to be constructive about it we would assemble people who have the backgrounds to work with governments it's a partnership but they need to rely on people in the private sector the academic community people that have the knowledge because the things that they design have all these unintended consequences that when something occurs that disrupts an element of the supply chain impacts society and they just don't have the perspective of what's required you look at some of the things that happened during the pandemic and all that, it's because the people that were overseeing it had no experience or background, zero. And you wonder why they can't solve the problem. So you put a bunch of people in the room that don't know how it works and guess what you get? You get policy, you get stuff they understand because they're lawyers, uh, none of it's gonna work. It's only, in fact, in many cases, it only makes it worse. The global supply chains are a massive decentralized system and Probably in the past, we never had a, a way of really understanding all parts of it. But I think now we do in digital data. And I think Sam's right. The governments don't know how to do this. They don't know what they're looking for. But a coalition of knowledgeable people from global businesses could come together and agree that this system is, because of this massive decentralization, is opaque. 
Brent, if you asked yourself in the middle of the pandemic, what would you forecast? How would you forecast the blockages that we've seen longer duration? Now, lots of people would have bits and pieces, but they're not assembled. There's no big data system that says this system is starting to get creaky. There's going to start to be blockages or congestion in this system. I think that's a solvable problem if it's driven by a kind of global private sector initiative. Maybe, maybe the Center for Global Enterprise. That's a really good thought. That's a, that's a great <laughs> thought. In fact, Chris, I think you have some research underway. I think we do. So before we close, we like to use the last minute or so to give our listeners some strategic thoughts and insights about what they should be considering. We call it our emerging critical issues moment. So I ask you, Mike and Sam, in one word or one phrase, tell us what emerging issue do you see on the horizon that business leaders need to put on their radar? I would just say overzealous governments. And that means, unfortunately, business leaders have to do something none of us like to do, which is get engaged. In a constructive way. I mean, not a political way. Don't form a pack and write checks and all those crazy things. Don't get in the middle of the U.S.-China relations. That's not your role. You don't understand this stuff anyway. But my point is that in a constructive way, engage to help these guys try to solve the problem versus try to just pass some piece of legislation that gets some two points in a poll. Mike, one word or one phrase? I think, what is your digital strategy, really? Thank you both for those. We'll come back to those in future podcasts. I want to thank you both for your time today. The GET is sponsored by the Center for Global Enterprise, celebrating 10 years of convening global enterprise leaders around the most important business transformation issues. All production and marketing for The GET is provided by Sandow Design Group. Our theme music is by Desi Funlove, available on Spotify. The Get is available wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the Center for Global Enterprise, go to www.thecge.net. And thank you for listening.